and take out your scriptures to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be looking at the second half of that chapter. Just as a way of information as you turn there. We were holding a membership class at the end of January, last Saturday in January. So if you have a, a idea of uh, or desire to join the church, which I and the elders highly encourage you to do, if you've been attending for a while, uh, first, part, first thing you do is attend this class. It tells you all about this church and what we believe and how we act together. That's on January 27th. Now, each one of us here remembers who broke the four-minute mile, don't we? I know Mike does, but does anybody else? Roger Bannister, of course, right? But who was the second person to do it? Don't know. It was a runner by the name of Gentleman John Landy. Landy got his nickname because of a famous stumble in the 1956 Australian Mile Race. About midway through that race, a runner by the name of Ron Clark stumbled and fell in front of him. And he accidentally stepped on him and spiked him in the shoulder and in the arm. Now, instead of continuing to run, as he was perfectly able and nobody would have blamed him for doing, Landy stopped and in, in an amazing act of sportsmanship actually helped this runner back up to his feet. And then he continued on the, on the race. Now, what made this race amazing is that John Landy, even though he lost seven seconds helping Ron Clark up, he won the race. Seven seconds is an eternity in a mile race. And he ended up winning it and almost breaking the four-minute mile again. Dubbing this race the Miracle Mile and giving John Landy his nickname, Gentleman John Landy. And it was all because of a famous stumble. Today we're going to look at another famous stumble. Not a race, but a walk. A stumble in Abraham's walk of faith. Look with me at verse 10 and following in chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram, Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. 
But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his whole household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was your sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had built the first altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me strength to preach this, your word, today to these people in all of our specific circumstances. Spirit, use the power of your word to change us, to convict us, to train us in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. We have no idea how long it has been between verses 9 and 10. Could be months, could be years. But the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to put this incident right next to what we just read about last week. An incredible, faithful act. Here we have Abram, a man who left everything to go to an unknown land by an unseen God, and he did it. Incredible faith. And we have a tendency to put people like that on the pedestal, don't we? People like that, we go, well, that's untouchable. Boy, if only I could live like him. Boy, what a great example. And we put them up there. But God is constantly saying no. And this is what this chapter is all about. And there's people like that in all of our lives that we put on a pedestal, isn't it? Whether it's MacArthur or Piper or Keller or, or Schaefer or McDowell or R.C. Sproul who just died this last Thursday. If you go to the Ligonier website, you can read what people said about R.C. People like Al Mohler and John MacArthur and Piper. Listen to what Robert Godfrey, the president of Westminster Seminary, said about R.C. Sproul. He wrote, Of all the adjectives that can and should be used to describe his life and ministry, the one that most comes to mind is faithful. And that word can be used for Abram as well, can it? Faithful. That's what we come out of verse 9 with. Faithful. And we enter verse 10. And just like Sproul and all the other heroes that you have in your mind, we, they all have clay feet. And that is what this section of scripture is teaching us. Abram has clay feet. Abram is a sinner. And we're going to see that laid out here in spades. Not only doesn't Scripture want us to put him on a pedestal, but we learn from Abram's stumble here three very important lessons about the enemy of faithfulness. The enemy of faithfulness. And the first enemy that we come across is fear. The first enemy of faithfulness is fear. 
Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. The word famine is used there twice. This word does not strike fear in our hearts. It does not. It just doesn't. We say famine, we go, eh, okay. But this word would strike fear in the hearts of everybody for a hundred years ago back. We live in America, the breadbasket of the world. Famine is never, ever on our minds. But we don't live in an agricultural society anymore. Famine is not part of our vocabulary. Whereas it was through most of history. It was a real, tangible, yearly possibility. One drought, one lack of rainfall, one locust swarm that you didn't even know was coming. And your family didn't eat. And our text tells us in verse 10 that it was a severe famine. uses that adjective to even deepen the fear here. And Abram probably thought that if they stay in Canaan, he and his family would starve. Pretty logical, right? So Abram did what you would do, what I would do, if I was in his situation. He left for greener, he left for greener pastures. He went to Egypt. Why did people go down to Egypt? Because of the Nile. It, it almost never went into a severe drought. Where there was drought everywhere else, you could go to the floodplains of the Nile and you knew that there was food. Egypt isn't always bad. Going down to Egypt is not always bad. We see, you're going to see that in chapter 46 when, when Jacob is told to go down to Egypt by God himself. If you're reading through, and I encourage you to do that, first couple chapters of Luke and and Matthew to to prepare your hearts and minds for, for Christ's birth, you realize that Jacob and Mary were told to go down to Egypt and hide, weren't they? So Egypt isn't always bad, but for the most part, when you read about Egypt, it's not indicating something good. It's indicating something that you're lacking, and that is lacking trust in God or faith in God. That's what was happening in Isaiah's time when, when enemy nations were pressing in from the north. And Isaiah told those in control, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, trust the multitude of their chariots and great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Watch out, he was saying. Don't rely on Egypt. Don't rely on man. Don't rely on on what you see. Trust God. That's exactly what Abraham wasn't doing here. He was not looking to the Lord for help. We see no evidence of that here. He was fearing his circumstances and not the Lord. He was not trusting the Lord. He was letting fear control his actions. I mean, just really step into this story and look at it from a human perspective. His decision is not bad, is it? It's a pretty good decision. We've got to get out of Dodge or we're going to die. It's a good decision. If work dries up here for you, 
on a consistent basis? Is it sinful and unfaithful for you to say, I'm moving to somewhere where I can find work? I want to tell you right now, no, that's not sinful. That's not unfaithful. But you also are not in Abram's situation, are you? Do you remember Abram's situation? He was called specifically to this land by God. I mean, if you just just go back up to the beginning of chapter 12, you can read about that calling. He, he says, go, leave your people, your country, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And Abram goes. And then when he gets there, if you look at verse uh, 7, you see that the Lord, when he gets to Canaan, the Lord appears to him and says, this land is it. I give this land where your feet are to you and your offspring. Now, as a side, all of those of you that are sitting here that are thinking, boy, if, I ju- if the Lord just appeared to me and told me, I'd be faithful. This story is here partly to dispel that. The Lord can appear to you and you still go, you forget about it and fear takes hold and you are unfaithful. So Abram pulls up stakes and leaves the promise. In a sense, Abram thinks like we do many times. Obedience is fine as long as it goes my way. And the minute it doesn't go my way, I'm taken over. Right? That's the click. We rely on our own resources, our own ingenuity. Abram abandons the promised land out of fear that God will not provide. That's one of the central messages of this text. Abram abandons the promised land out of fear that God will not provide for him. As we have said many times from this pulpit and back there in Sunday school, fear is a powerful motivator. If your fear is not focused on the right thing, It'll, it'll toss you back and forth. Fear is incredibly powerful. It'll cause you not to do something you should do. It will cause you to do things that you know you shouldn't do. It will make you say things or even be someone you're not. But at its core, fear makes you rely on yourself and not God. Fear makes you rely on yourself and not God. Kyle Eidelman describes an experience he had in his book, Not a Fan, that exemplifies how silly our self-reliance really is from God's perspective. He writes, When I started a new church in Los Angeles, I found that I was overwhelmed with the pressure and stress. I worked more than 70 hours a week, and I began to lose sleep and began taking sleeping pills because of the stress. When the church was a year old, he writes, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had this strange sense that God was laughing at me. He says, I had no idea what was going on at that time. But then about five years later, he said they were moving into their current house, and he saved his heaviest piece of furniture for last, his his desk. 
as I was pushing and pulling the desk with all my might, my four-year-old son came over and asked if he could help. So we started sliding the desk across the floor together. After a few minutes, my son stopped pushing, looked up at me, and said, Dad, you're in my way. I stepped back, and as he tried to push the desk, and it didn't budge, I began to laugh. And that struck me. He says, five years, that incident five years ago flooded back into his mind of the sense of God laughing at him. He says, I realized that back then I was acting like my four-year-old son. I thought I was actually doing all the work in that church. I thought I was building that church. I thought I was pushing the desk. I started to think it all depended on me. I was relying on my knowledge, my wisdom, my understanding. Fear is an enemy of faith because it continually tempts you and me to trust in ourselves. To think that it all depends on me. I've got to solve this. I've got to, I've got to think through this and I'll come to something that will actually make this better turns us towards things like pragmatism, human logic, what is reasonable, but at its core, it makes us self-reliant. Fear pushes us towards self-reliance. And that's what, exactly what Abram was doing here, guys. Fear drove him to look at the famine and fear. Fear drove him to look somewhere else, Egypt instead of God. Fear drove him to look at his situation instead of remembering the promise and even the appearance of God. He seems to have forgotten that, but he forgot the promise. He trusted in himself. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many times when the Lord wants us to use our common sense. He does. He gave us good minds. He gave us common sense. But he doesn't want us to get into a let go and let God. You know, he, he's going to solve this. He doesn't want us there either. There are times in our lives, usually at the most basic and foundational areas, we just need to trust God. We do just need to step back and say, God, it's your promises. Trust him for the promise of daily bread, the basic, basic supply to you. Trust him in his promise of protection, ultimate protection, ultimate. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That kind of embodies that. Trust in his promise of prosperity. Not that you'll have mansions and cars, but that he will prosper you spiritually. If that means giving you more money, he will. If that means withholding things from you, he will. But he will prosper you spiritually. Trust in his promise to supply your every need. 
every need, not what you think you need. You know, my mind went to those bar graphs that I used to use where you, you have where you are and where you need to be, right? Two different colors, blue and yellow. Why are we so dissatisfied? Because we live in the yellow. Why am I not here? Instead of the Lord saying, I gave you all of this. We live here. Our fear and that dissatisfaction comes in when we live beyond the promises. Lord, I know you promised me daily bread. But what about going to Red Sky? Isn't that daily bread? We lean on our own understanding. When like Abram, like Abram, we look to ourselves instead of God. Second great enemy of faith is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Forgetting the promises of God. This is kind of a lead-in from what I just said. In verses 11 through 13 here, we have... We have Abram talking to his wife, don't we? And convincing Sarai to lie about the most important relationship in his life. Physical relationship. Marriage. Because he feared what they would do to him once they saw her beauty. But also, and perhaps more egregiously, Abram saw a way to profit through this. Did you pick up on that? Look at verse 13. Say you are my sister, so that they will treat me well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. They will treat me well. In ancient Near East culture, you had a bride price. Someone wanted to marry a relation... A family relation, a family member was was given the responsibility to negotiate the bride price. Okay, you want my sister? How much? I think that's what was going on here. He was not only fearing for his life, but he saw a way to profit. And events fold exactly as Abram predicted. Verse 14 through 16, we see that Sarai's uh, beauty is noticed. He's brought to the Pharaoh's household as a concubine, a wife. And in verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake and acquired cattle and sheep and servants and so on. As one commentator put it here, Abram is acting as his wife's pimp. Puts it kind of in your face, doesn't it? So why did he do this to his wife? Certainly fear had something to do with it. But he also forgot God's promise. He forgot a promise that God made to him. Look back with me at verse 3 in chapter 12. We didn't cover this last week because it's covered here. It says, I will bless you, starting in verse 2. I will bless you, making you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. All these promises and you will be a blessing. And then verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. What's going on there? This is a divine promise of protection. God is in essence saying, I'm going to protect you. Rely on me for protection. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. If someone hurts you, look to me. 
This was their guarantee, the promise that he would protect his people. And, and brothers and sisters, we see this all over the scripture, the, the fulfilling of this promise. On the macro scale, you see it all the time. Just think of Second uh, Kings 19, when the Assyrian army is camped outside of Jerusalem, right? In the time of Hezekiah. 185,000 of them. And they go to bed. The siege is going to happen the next day. And they wake up. You remember what happened? The angel of the Lord, it says, went out and killed them all. Whoever curses you, they got me to answer to, is what he's saying. You see this on the micro scale all the time, too. I've mentioned this before, but it's important to understand the, the, the real lesson of David and Goliath. What gave David all that courage? Because he was a good shot with lions and he'd done it for, I don't know, four or five years? Uh-uh. It's when Goliath stood there and brought down curses on Israel when he was bringing food to his, his uh, brothers. As soon as David heard that, he goes, oh, <laughs> Goliath's dead. I'll go. I'll kill him. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, you got God to deal with. This is a promise of divine protection for you and me, for God's people. And that's what we see happening here. Pharaoh unknowingly is threatening and hurting God's people. He didn't know it. But God is still going to protect his people. And he sends disease on that household. Pharaoh is abusing his power, certainly. Pharaoh is taking something that is not his. And the serious disease he inflicts on Pharaoh's household is a curse. And it's the promise of protection being fulfilled. And Abram should have remembered that promise, but he forgot. He forgot. He didn't remember that promise. He realizing, as we need to realize, that Yahweh, what Yahweh says, is as good as accomplished. That's a definition of God's promises. When God says it, when God makes a promise, we have to take it as if it's accomplished. It's a fait accompli. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, writes this, Speech-act theory makes a case that our words not only convey information, but they get things done. However, God's words have power infinitely beyond our own. God's words are identical with his actions. We humans say, let there be light in this room, but we first have to make sure the room has been properly wired. Then we have to walk over and flip the light switch. Our words need deeds to back them up and can fail to achieve their purposes. But God's word, however, cannot fail their purposes because for God, speaking and acting are the same things. Speaking and acting are the same things. That's foundational in understanding the promises of God. His promising and his fulfilling are the same thing. So when God told Abram, I'll curse those who curse you, Abram should have known that it was as good as accomplished. Ah, 
that's how we have to approach God's promises. Good is done. It's a fait accompli. So when Jesus gives the promise in John 11 that if you believe in him, even though you die, you will live. It's the promise of the gospel, right? It's it's done. We should know that it's as good as accomplished. See, Jesus' promise of eternal life, real life with him after death, real life with him after death. If you realize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, his promise is to forgive, and it's a fait accompli. Past, present, and future. If you understand that your goodness doesn't earn you heaven, if you understand that, then heaven is yours. If you accept that Jesus lived that perfect life, sinless life, Actually, this is how we see Christ in this story, isn't it? Abram came down and failed and lived faithlessly. Christ came down and lived among us in Egypt, and he lived perfectly faithfully. If you trust that he took your death penalty punishment on the cross, his promise is to release you from your death penalty. If you believe that he rose from the dead, he promises to give you eternal life. That's how the promises work. It's as good as done. If you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, first of all, I'm overjoyed that you're with us. But secondly, I want you not to forget Christ's promise right here of the gospel of freedom from sin, freedom from slavery, of a life eternal, if you turn from your sin and trust Christ. Because God's promises and their fulfillment are the same thing. Last great enemy of faith is infidelity. Infidelity in worship. If you look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 13, we see that Abraham comes back from Egypt once the Pharaoh tells him to go. He goes back to Canaan, and it's interesting what he does. Where does he go? Where does he make a beeline to? Bethel. Between Bethel and Ai, where he built that first altar, where he called on the name of the God, where he worshipped. He goes back to worshiping. Now, if we look at the context of chapter 12, it's curious that you see in the first half of chapter 12, Abram going around the promised land, building altars and worshiping. Then he goes down into Egypt and it's bereft of worship. And then as soon as he's propelled back into into Canaan, he goes right back and he, he starts worshiping again. What can we learn from this? We can learn that worship is critical. It's central in a faith walk. Worship is critical if you want to walk with Christ faithfully. Worship is so central and so critical to the life of the believer 
that we could say it's literally what we're saved to do. It's literally what we're saved to do is worship. Remember in Exodus that Exodus is the, is the grand analogy of the Christian life. The reason that Moses gives, uh, that God gives Moses for freeing his people back in chapter 3, and then he reiterates it in, in chapter 8, what is it? Go tell him to free my people so that they can come worship me. That's the reason. And that's the reason of our great Exodus, guys. He frees us from sin so that we can worship him here with our bodies, with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts, with our motives, everything. Even if you take a light scan of the Old Testament, you see that worship is the binding agent, isn't it? Exodus is freeing God, uh, freeing people so they can worship. The exile is an exile from God in worship. The return is the return to God and worship. What's the biggest issue that God has when they get back into the promised land after the exile? Build the temple so that you can worship me. He sends Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai to encourage the people, build the temple, build the temple, build the temple. When Titus wanted to scatter God's people in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus, what did he do? He took the temple stone by stone and raised it all the way to the ground. And he scattered the stones far and wide. Take this worship away from these people and they will not be a people. Worship is so critical to the life of the believer that when we cease worshiping, even for a little while, our focus in life becomes scattered. We become off-kilter, off-center. We begin to wander when we don't worship. When we cease to worship, even for a short time, our spiritual vitality begins to get clogged. Worship is at the key. It's at the center. It's a story about a well that stood in front of a family farmhouse. And the well was dug and it was full of pure and cold water. No matter how hot the summer or how severe the drought, this well was always a source of refreshment. The faithful old well stood for years until eventually the farmhouse was modernized. Electricity was brought in and so was modern plumbing. And the old well was no longer needed, so it was sealed up. Years went by until someone had a desire to taste that cold, pure well water again. So it was unsealed and the bucket was lowered. And there was no water. The well that once had survived the severest droughts was bone dry. Why? Wells like this one were fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets which seep a steady flow of water. As long as the water is drawn, drawn out of the well, new water will flow into the well, keeping open those pores that flow. But when the water stops being drawn out, the rivulets begin to clog up with mud. 
The well is dried up not because it is used too much, but because it is used too little. Our souls are like that well, people. If we do not draw on the living water of Jesus through worship, our heart begins to clog up, to use the metaphor. And our priorities begin to get warped. We begin to put other things above God in importance. Our godly piety begins to erode. What once was clearly wrong becomes confused. Our love for each other begins to fade. The one thing that Jesus said would attract the world in John 13, our love for each other, that's the attractive force, begins to fade. But perhaps the most important thing about worship is that it diminishes is that you don't hear the gospel preached into your life. You don't hear about the great sacrifice that God made on your behalf. And and that little arc that we can begin to meditate on, and hopefully you have been meditating on this year, this time of year, is the sacrifice it took for Christ, God, to step into our situation. God becoming man, from palace to feeding trough, from majesty to ridicule, from perfect love to perfect hate, from acceptance to rejection. And worship reminds us week in and week out of how forgetful we are about what Christ has done for us. And it recenters our life so that we can live in Egypt, guys, because that's where we are. Professor of theology Edmund Clowney wrote, people who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness with no steady direction, no sustaining purpose. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement and seduction and every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. There's no center because there's no circumference. Doesn't that describe Abram in Egypt? A man that that lost his way. No steady direction. At the mercy of every seduction. Manipulating and being manipulated. So let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Hebrews 10.25 But let us encourage one another all the more as the day approaches. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Use it in our hearts. Soften. And even break our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.